Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. FTX Japan resumes customer withdrawals, Hong Kong unveils fresh crypto-friendly plans, and Ordinals expands onto Litecoin. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Sergey Gorbanov of Axelar and Haseeb Qureshi from Dragonfly. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss cross-chain interoperability, Web3, and Axelar's goals in scaling it. But first, let's take a look at our latest price analysis. Major cryptocurrencies are taking a breather today. The total crypto market cap is down nearly 2% on crypto market cap. Bitcoin is trading at $24,500. That's lower on the day, but Bitcoin remains up 12% on a trailing seven-day basis. However, according to a report by the Bank for International Settlements, which was cited by The Block, a majority of retail investors over the last seven years lost money on Bitcoin. The analysis takes 2015 to 2022 into account and is based on crypto exchange activity in 95 countries. Meanwhile, Ether is trading at around $1,670. That's 2% lower for the past 24 hours, but up 8% trailing seven days. We're also keeping an eye on BNB. Coindesk says the native token of the crypto exchange Binance has hit its lowest point against Bitcoin since August last year. That's as questions surrounding Bitcoin's business practices, excuse me, Binance's business practices and the decision by its partners Paxos to stop issuing its stablecoin BUSD continue to cause some concern among investors. Finally, the best performer of the day is Anchor, the token of a decentralized blockchain infrastructure provider, that's A-N-K-R, is up nearly 50% on a 24-hour basis. That's after Anchor signed a partnership deal with Microsoft to provide a node hosting service on the Microsoft Azure marketplace. Okay, viewers, join us in the conversation. Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on air later in the show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is free. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Sergey Gorbanov is co-founder of Axelar, the cross-chain network. He previously was involved with Algorand. Hashib Qureshi is the managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, the crypto investment fund. I should say Dragonfly is an investor in Axelar. Guys, first off, tell us a little bit about your company and your work. Um, sure, yeah. So, Sergey, I'm co-founder of Axelar. Um, what we're focusing on is building secure cross-chain communication infrastructure, right? Uh, at the end of the day, our goal is to be able to unite all the different blockchains and different layers in the blockchain ecosystem that have been built and enable very simple developer and user experiences interacting and building in the space. Jump in, Hasib. 
Yeah, so I'm Asib. I'm a managing partner at Dragonfly, which is a global crypto investment firm. Uh, so we invest into early stage projects that are trying to build the next generation of crypto infrastructure and applications. So we love uh, backing you know, innovative new ideas like what Sergey is building with XLR. So let's just jump in and go through a little bit more detail. Uh, Sergey, first, you talk about cross-chain interoperability. This is a subject uh, that has been in the headlines over the past year, not always for the best of reasons. Obviously, what I'm referring to here is a series uh, of significant hacks, particularly in the cross-chain bridge space. First, talk a little about what happened uh, during those situations, and also give us a little bit of context uh, for why you believe your solution has the potential to change this situation. Yeah, so I think what happened uh, throughout the last year is that we've seen a failure effectively of centralized protocols, right? Mm -hmm. And everything from centralized bridging protocols to, you know, other exchanges and so on and so forth, they're all very, very centralized. And I think when it comes to kind of cross-chain, the stakes are high, right? Uh, in most of the use cases for cross-chain, you're either moving value or information from one blockchain to another, right? And so the question, whenever you move in this value, um, how is it protected and how is it secured on the back end? Right? It's very easy to spin up, you know, a centralized server or you know a multi-sig to hold your funds, um, to move the information to authorize it. But that has catastrophic effects, as we have seen. Right. So right. these get compromised. You have bugs sometimes. You have operational issues and so on and so forth. And so um, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do with Axler, and I think as a, as an industry, we have to do is we have to learn how to build kind of decentralized cross-chain or interoperability infrastructure that connects these decentralized platforms, right? Like you can't have a centralization in the middle, you know, for the same reason as, you know, you should not have kind of a centralized actors in the Web3 space. It, it adds huge risks. It, had, it has huge robustness problems within it. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with Axler is build infrastructure that's secure, that's decentralized, um, and it has many layers of protections, right? When it comes to cross-chain, everything from the right network to the right operations behind it, right? Like how do you do key rotations? How do you do, uh, you know, validator uh, uh, membership changes? What types of code audits do you do? What types of rate limits do you have? And all those things. So our view is to take really a full stack approach at the problem and trying to kind of uh, tackle it from the bottom up. Sergey, your background is uh, in engineering. I believe you have a PhD from MIT. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how that plays into what you do today. Yeah, so my original background, actually, you know, I worked a little bit with uh, computer networking and uh, like software defined networking. So, you know, kind of a back in the kind of, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was a pretty hot topic as people were learning how do you efficiently kind of route traffic across the internet effectively, right? And there, there was a kind of a, a thesis where a lot of the work has to be done like at hardware or like networking switches, right? And uh, I think what we tried to do with the software defined networking and some of the stuff we did there was really find a way to manage global networks efficiently, right? Where management, we're really talking about like microseconds or nanoseconds processing time sometimes, right? And, you know, now in blockchain, we're talking about five second blocks. So it's like a luxury <laughs> to work on. <laughs> um, and so after that, you know, I wanted to study formal cryptography, went to uh, do a PhD at MIT, design a lot of like protocols for kind of quantum resilient cryptography for uh, being able to process the uh, information on top of encrypted data. And uh, at the end of grad school, I think, uh, you know, I discovered um, blockchain. So that was 2013, 2014, early days. And I think kind of the combination of networking economics and kind of cryptography all in one 
um, all in one ecosystem really fascinated me, right? So I think um, being able to apply uh, some of my background and, and skills to actually solve the problems that you can ship and see an impact tomorrow really, really fascinated me, right? Like before that, especially when you deal with cryptography, there is a saying that whatever you do is going to be practical 20 years later, right? Or impactful 20 years later. Like that's this cycle of uh, adoption in the, you know, at least in the academic cryptography, right? Uh, and so that was the horizon that I was working on yeah. uh, at that time. But well, really, either that or it's going to be a risk 20 years later. That's the challenge. And I suppose that's, uh, that's also the glory. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, crypto networks and uh, blockchain uh, really, really fascinating. You get to apply amazing technology, you get to build something that, that has impact, you know, tomorrow, right? And has impact on both the users and developers. Uh, for me, it's a just a fascinating new developer, kind of a paradigm and a developer stack that has very, very unique properties. Haseeb, you have an interesting background as well as an investor uh, and as an engineer. Talk a little bit about what propelled you uh, to be managing partner over at Dragonfly. So my background is a little bit complicated. So before I ever got into crypto, I used to be a professional poker player. Did that for about five years. Then found myself eventually becoming a software engineer. I don't have any formal training, unlike uh, very unlike Sergey. Uh, but I ended up working at Airbnb and then later at a company called Earn.com, which got acquired by Coinbase. Um, and that's how I ended up finding myself in the crypto rabbit hole. Becoming an investor was quite random for me. Actually, I originally was an entrepreneur and uh, I ended up meeting Naval Ravikant, who's uh, now a very well-known angel investor into crypto and the manager of one of the very first funds in crypto called Metastable Capital. Uh, and he ended up convincing me to come onto the investing side. And the idea of becoming an investor uh, was just that, you know, when, when you're a builder, and I have all the respect for the world and for builders, and I, and I enjoy making things myself. Um, but when you're a builder, you're really taking a bet on one single idea, one single application, one single thesis about how the world is going. Um, and a lot of it is just really execution, right? You, even if you find the right idea, you spend the next six, seven years just making that idea, you know, scaling it, bringing it into fruition, building an institution around it, uh, or a decentralized network around it. Right. Whereas being an investor, as an investor, it's really more of a pure intellectual enterprise in that your job is to try to figure out what will happen and what won't happen and to use your uh your capital to basically try to make predictions about the future and when you're wrong figure out that you're wrong as fast as possible and change your mind in real time uh and i've found over the years of being an investor that it's it's just it's so intellectually gratifying and it's also so great to be able to work with people who are trying to fulfill their own ambitions and their own visions and help those things come to reality so it's very rewarding uh, both in terms of if you get it right, it can be very financially rewarding, but also in right. terms of just the impact that you can see yourself having on entrepreneurs and on the industry uh, is also really, uh, really rewarding. You know, you said something uh, in the earlier segment of the show when I was introducing you, uh, this idea that what you invest in at Dragonfly is infrastructure. That's a phrase that we use here on Real Vision a fair amount. What's your definition of infrastructure and why do you feel it's so important? <laughs> so infrastructure in crypto is notoriously vague because almost everything can be described as infrastructure because everything in crypto is composable. So because you can build something on top of everything you can imagine, you can build something on top of OpenSea. You can call that infrastructure because it's got an API. You can build applications on top of OpenSea. Same thing for Uniswap, same thing for Ethereum, same thing for Bitcoin, and of course, same thing for Axlar. So what you describe as infrastructure really depends on who's asking the question in crypto. Right. It's generally not the same thing in, when you're investing into infrastructure, for example, an enterprise B2B 
very well defined what infrastructure is. Um, internally, when we talk about infrastructure, usually we mean not user-facing or not retail-facing applications. Um, so anything along the, that, those lines, whether they be an API company that's completely centralized or you know, a protocol like Axelar, which is designed to be used by bridges or by particular cross-chain applications, uh, that would also be infrastructure, but more decentralized infrastructure mm. rather than centralized. Well, you know, you hit on something that's so critical here, and it'd be interesting to get Sergey's take on this from this perch at Axelar, which is this idea of composability, the idea that in the digital asset space and the decentralized space and the crypto space, essentially everything can be built on top of each other. You have APIs, you have well-defined protocols uh, that essentially control how data comes in and how data goes out. Uh, and it essentially means that you can plug these things together. One of the phrases uh, I've used to describe it to the non-technically inclined is this idea of money Legos, uh, that you can literally build things and then you can build things with the blocks that you built and then you can build things with the blocks that you built with the blocks that you built and you can keep ever stacking it higher. Uh, talk a little bit, Sergey, uh, about what your vision looks like for building uh, that type of infrastructure at Axelar uh, and how that's relevant. Yeah, so I think what happens you know, what's been happening in the blockchain space over the last few years is that we've seen just an array of different kind of layers being built, right? You have different chains, everything from kind of Ethereum-based or EVM-based chains to like new chains that are based on like move languages, right? Rust and so on and so forth. And I think what happens is that while you still have these kind of a building blocks and Legos within those chains, right? Because they're all their own ecosystems across them, kind of a, that building block and like those Legos have been largely disconnected, right? So, and uh, this is really kind of the problem that we're trying to solve with um, with Axelar is finding a way to continue to compose and stitch these building blocks together across different ecosystems, right? And so these ecosystems and these blockchains could really have very, very different properties, right? So some of them could, again, like be based on like JavaScript, right? Languages, uh, other ones based on like Solidity, other ones based on Move or something else. And we want to see those innovations keep happening, right? Because we don't know what is the ultimate like programming language going to look like in the blockchain space, which ones are going to be used for one type of application or the other. So we want all of these different ecosystems to evolve. We all of one of them to continue innovating, but they still want to be able to talk to one another, right? They still mm -hmm. be, want to be able to compose, um, but the, this composition is actually very hard across them, right? Um, primarily because, you know, on a single chain, you, you have what we call as like atomic execution environment, right? You mm -hmm. submit a transaction, the transaction can interact with multiple applications or multiple Legos on building blocks and it succeeds or fails, right? Across multiple different chains, that's not the case. You have to submit a transaction that usually goes to one chain, maybe it then goes to the other chain. It has to touch some other different building blocks that maybe have different like finality properties and things like that. Um, and so it's, it's a hard problem, right? Uh, but, but I do think it's kind of a possible to solve. And the end goal kind of for us all the time has been to allow users to interact with any asset, any application, any chain with one click. Yeah, well, problems are interesting unless they're hard. I wanted to zoom the camera out a little bit uh, and talk about what the view that you guys have in terms of the the end state, the goals. You know, I, I think it was over the weekend I was out with a friend of mine uh, who's been a very long-term watcher of financial markets. And after a couple cocktails, he said to me, listen, I, this crypto stuff is really interesting, right? But why do I need it, right? Like, why do I care? I, I kind of like the interaction I have with my bank. Yeah, I mean, I wish they would charge me lower fees and 
Uh, sometimes I wish the lines were shorter. But like, what, what are you guys building here that I really care about? And why should I uh, actually think about the future as something I should be excited about? Hasib, what do you think about big picture? We've been talking about granular uh, topics here so far, about people, things in the space uh, are very interested in. But big picture, what do you see the future looking like in one, three, five years? Well, first thing I'd say is I'd, I'd be curious what the age was of the gentleman who told you that he loves interacting with his bank. Because I can tell you anybody under the age of 25 has absolutely zero uh, patience for their banks. banks so, this is someone who's been watching markets for more than 25 years. So, Okay, okay, got it. So look, the reality is that if you look at NPS scores, you look at trust scores, banks are at basically pretty close to the bottom of anything that consumers use on a regular basis. Uh, people right. hate their banks. And banks because they are very regulatorily captured and they're very ingrained uh, into pretty much every single country and they're in their you know, borderline state owned in almost every country in which banks operate, which basically means that there's almost no competition. Competition is very, very, very tightly regulated in the banking industry, which means that part of what crypto does, if you ignore all the other applications that people talk about NFTs and you know, uh, digitizing more and more types of assets and metaverse and all that kind of stuff, but just look at the, the, the core basis we're talking about finance, we're talking about markets, which is, which is sort of what, you know, what the, where that conversation began. Um, the answer very simply is that crypto is the first application that we have seen that takes the principles of open source software and allows them to compete with banks, allows them to compete with financial infrastructure. And that has never before been possible. It's never before been allowed. And part of the reason, of course, why this is so powerful is that what, what crypto does is it does to finance what the internet did to every single other industry. Every industry that you can imagine has been absolutely disrupted by the, by the, uh, the coming of the internet, except right. for banking, except for finance. For finance, the only difference in finance is that now I have an app that I can use to look at my thing, but if I want to send more than some amount of money, I still have to go into a bank branch or like go sign some form on a piece of paper. Um, and the reality is like there, there, just, there hasn't been that much innovation. I see. Let me ask it, it this way, because I, yes. I agree. I don't know a single human being uh, who says they love their bank, uh, but there also are not a lot of people who really truly hate theirs. Uh, you know, once it's it's a, a function of age. It's a function of how well established you are. I think uh, when you obviously have some assets, you get far better customer service from banks. So I guess the question to you is this: What might that vision look like of the functionality that one might hope uh, to get from transacting with? DeFi uh, rather than a centralized institution. I think that part of the the challenge here isn't that you know people love their banks. As I said, I don't think anybody loves their bank. Uh, but but there is also this sense of risk, right? You may not love your bank, but you know uh, if someone steals your credit card, uh, that you're not going to be on the hook for fifty thousand dollars worth of transactions. I I got my credit card ripped off uh, digitally. Someone stole my credit card number a number of years ago, and I got a call from my bank you know, 20 minutes later saying, hey, have you been buying uh, like thousands of dollars worth of stuff in uh, in Queens at a Radio Shack? Nope, not me. Don't worry, Mr. Bennington, we'll take care of those transactions for you, right? So it, while there's not any affection for banks, uh, there is also the fear, I think, of moving uh, to a new paradigm where people feel as though they may not be insulated by that protective layer. Talk a little bit about what you see the opportunity being in terms of attracting people, what new functionality might pull them in uh, and make individuals think that DeFi is something that really stands to you actually give them back something in their lives that they don't have now? So the, the first thing that I would say is that I don't think, if you're talking about low-hanging fruit of where crypto is going to disrupt finance and banking, um, the answer is that it's really not going to do much for you and me. You and I are very, you know, we're, we're relatively well off. We live in the first world. We have relationships with banks and banks want to treat us very well. 
Um, so I, I don't think it's very likely that somebody living in the United States who is upper middle class uh, is going to get very much out of the banking aspect of crypto. There, there are basically three categories of people for whom I think crypto really does matter and for, De for which mm -hmm. DeFi and crypto are going to make a big impact. The first is people who are uh, basically not being presently served, even in first world countries, such as dissidents, people who are, people who have, for whatever reason, uh, are not, you know, the cannabis industry or obviously the crypto industry, which is right now getting actively debanked. Uh, these are people for whom, okay, even in the first world, uh, crypto presents something as an attractive way to circumvent the regular banking sector. Uh, that's a relatively small cohort. Let's put that aside, right? The second is people who are outside the U.S., who are outside of first world countries, which of course is the vast majority of people on earth. Yes. And if you if your reference class is simply well you know if Wells Fargo treats me really nicely and I can get on the phone with this nice guy from Iowa who will like you know take my call any time of day, uh, that's not what most people's experience of banks are. And of course, the the failure rate of banks around the world is quite high. Uh, the failure rate of currencies around the world is quite high. Um, and so the the desire for people to have financial freedom and desire and financial flexibility is something that almost in in, in most places on Earth um, is short lived. If you look at Asia, where the majority of crypto adoption, crypto usage is, right, pretty much every single country in Asia, people have experienced regime change in their lifetime. If they're, you know, in their 50s or 60s, they remember when the money was different. They remember when the government was different. And right. so for them, it is not an intellectual question of, hey, can I trust the banks? Can I trust the government to have continuity over my wealth? Uh, in the U.S., that's, it's, a, it's a totally different story, right? We've had 250 plus years of uninterrupted government. Uh, but that's not true in most places in the world. Um, now, the third category, so there's people outside the U.S. in places where the institutions are not as strong. But the third category, which is, is one that's becoming increasingly obvious why this is going to matter, is non-human actors, right? So who else needs to own money besides people? Well, AIs, machines, self-driving cars, right? Do you think AIs are going to be able to get bank accounts at Wells Fargo? No. Right? All of our laws, all of our institutions have been built around this assumption that there are only three categories of things that can own money. Governments can own money, corporations can own money, and individual people with social security cards can own money. If you're not one of those three things, you can't have money. But all of this technology is moving at such a rapid pace that there is absolutely no way that the, the, the first AI that starts interacting as an agent and right now, you know, I'm not talking about things like ChatGPT, which are not yet agentic. They're, they're a little bit too simple for them to be able to make economic transactions. Um, but it's not going to be too long before we start having AIs that, that start trying to solve problems the way that human beings solve problems, which we know how to solve problems that involve trade-offs and that involve shared resources. The answer is with money. AIs will use money. And when they do, it's probably not going to be fiat because the, the ways in which banking is going to adapt to these things is not going to be fast enough compared to crypto, which has been digital and digitally native from the very beginning. Any machine, any AI can figure out how to hold a cryptographic key. That's going to be, I think, the third frontier that's going to open up over the next couple of decades. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Well, it's fascinating. It's such a good point uh, to talk about the unbanked here in the developed world. And of course, uh, the vast majority of people in this world uh, who do not live in the developed world uh, live in emerging markets and frontier markets. Such an important point. I think when people hear AI and money, they probably find it in equal measure exciting and terrifying, uh, as <laughs> I do. And it's it's you know really is a, a fascinating and vast topic. But I want to ask uh, Sergey uh, a question about this. Sergey, are you driven in the same sense that Hasib is by a by a vision, or is it kind of rather like from the bottom up? Do you look at this and think, wow, this is just cool stuff to play with, uh, and the vision evolves, or do you have a very strong vision that compels you to work in this technology? Yeah, so, so for me, actually, I think early motivations came from personal problems that I've experienced, right? So, you know, I was uh, kind of born in Russia, then moved to Canada, then moved to US and kind of going and, and traveling back and forth. To me, as an individual, actually, a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve came or come every time you want to move, frankly, countries, right? So as an example, you know, you go from Canada to US, you can't even take your credit card history with you, right? Like, you know, you can't do anything. You have to like rebuild it from scratch in the in the States. If you want to send money, right. you have to place a phone call, right? Uh, you know, it takes you 20 minutes, then they charge you $30, then they rebate you those $30, right? You want to move a car across like the, you know, the borders. It's actually a pain, right? Like you have to import it and so on and so forth. So right. I think um, to me, as we're becoming more global citizens in some sense, right? As we travel the world, as we have jobs across the world, um, being able to take your identity, being able to take ownership of your assets and, and go with them somewhere else and have it be portable and easily transferable and easily used in different countries or different societies is actually a very, I guess, a personal problem, right? And so to me, um, a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve are around uh, are around that, and you know, I think a lot of people are experiencing the same the same issues. Um, yeah, you know, today. And by the way, Sergey challenges himself in AI, so this is very important to him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. Is he agentic? <laughs> very agentic. Very agentic. That's why. That's why you should be worried. That's why you should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if it's a problem between the United States and Canada, which is kind of the best uh, world case uh, right now, at least in North America, uh, for transferring assets and transferring information, imagine what it must be like uh, in the rest of the world between emerging markets, between emerging markets and developed markets. It is a considerable challenge. I also wanted to take a look at some additional crypto news stories today. We have multiple important updates regarding FTX. Bloomberg reports FTX, another FTX insider, I should say, is planning to plead guilty. Nishad Singh is said to be criminally charged over his role in an alleged fraud at FTX. This again, according to Bloomberg. Uh, Nassad is the former director of engineering at FTX. He's reportedly working on a deal with authorities. Meanwhile, FTX Japan customers are able to withdraw their funds again. The company says the process might take time due to high demand. FTX Japan was a highly regulated subsidiary of FTX. Coindesk customers funds in Japan were largely protected, uh, excuse me, Coindesk says customer funds in Japan, these are FTX customer funds in Japan, were largely protected due to the country's strict laws. The exchange could be sold as the parent company seeks to raise funds. And finally, FTX's collapse continues to claim victims. The latest one is Galois Capital. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, like the cigarettes, one of the largest crypto quantitative funds. The fund has confirmed on Twitter it will shut. The FT says Galois had half of its funds stuck on FTX. According to Coindesk, the value of those funds was $40 million. Uh, Sergey Hasib, what do you make of this whole FTX debacle? I mean, it's hard to say things that haven't already been said. Um, at this point, you know, we're we're getting more and more of the 
kind of death spasms. Um, you know, thankfully, I think part of the reasons why markets have stabilized in Q1 is and and recovered quite a bit is because we we finally have a good idea of what where the bodies were, and they've now floated up to the surface mostly. But always there's there's going to be some stragglers. I think Galois, you know, they were infamous for having uh, called out the Terra collapse uh, before it happened and being in, in some ways one of the instigators of the of the Terra, uh, you know, wind down. And um, it's 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 real it's really unfortunate to see. Um, you know, such a uh, such a stalwart player in the industry get taken down by this, but ultimately, you know, I have to imagine for 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 Kevin at Galois, you know, the, I think it was reported that something like half of his fund was stuck on FTX, and yep. you know, when when taking a loss like that, especially after such a harrowing year, anyway, um, you know, as a, as a hedge fund, so the way hedge funds operate, they generally have what's called a high watermark, meaning that uh, you know, if you start a fund, let's say you have a hundred bucks in your fund. And then it comes 200 bucks and you and you book carry. So you get a percentage of the profits over that 100. If you go down a lot in the next year, let's say you go down all the way to 50, that means you no longer get any carry, meaning you no longer get a percentage of the profits until you hit that high watermark of 200 again. And so if he's lost not only the capital from, you know, just the downturn last year, but on top of that, he lost, you know, half of his fund in FTX, then there's just no realistic way unless he like 4Xs, 5Xs his fund that he's ever going to see a dollar of carry again. So it's it's an unfortunate situation for everybody involved, of course, for the investors into Galois and for Kevin himself. But um, it is, you know, he's he's a brilliant guy. I'm sure he's going to find other opportunities. Um, so, but yeah, I, I, I got to pour one out for him because he's, especially after having called Terra and being really renowned for being one of the, um, you know, the sort of Paul Revere of the of the Terra collapse. Uh, yeah. He nevertheless got hit by FTX, which was a surprise to pretty much everyone. Well, you know, it speaks to some of the themes that we've been discussing here, this idea of centralization versus decentralization, centralized actors, centralized risk points, centralized points of failure uh, that can create uh, this type of circumstance uh, where such losses become possible. I mean, you have to believe uh, if there were decentralized products uh, out there, decentralized exchanges, decentralized services that allowed people to operate uh, in the same way uh, with the same liquidity and uh, other types of attributes that centralized exchanges do, lots of players would want to participate in them. So it really does speak to the, many of the points and themes that we're exploring here today. Well, it's it's a little subtle, right? Because if you look at the, we just talked about FTX and we talked about Terra. Terra was decentralized, or at least nominally decentralized, right? You could see how it worked on chain. Uh, being decentralized doesn't stop you from failing. There's nothing about being decentralized that that prevents right. a collapse or prevents a big mistake. You know, we talked about bridges that have had lots of hacks. The yep. difference is that with FTX, there was really no way for anyone to have known what was going on. Um, you know, Sam intentionally uh, obfuscated what was actually happening at FTX and what was really going on in the balance sheet. Um, whereas, at least in the case of Terra, you, you know, you can't stop a decentralized protocol if it's badly designed from breaking, but you can observe how it's broken. And call it out, mm. and that's precisely what the difference was, I think, between Terra and FTX. With FTX, almost everybody had some exposure to FTX because it was just assumed that this thing must be real; it must be solid. Because how could all this money and all this institutional capital have come in if there wasn't a there there? Uh, right. Whereas with Terra, you know, you could have a Kevin who goes out and sees, like, hey, I can look at how this mechanism works on chain. I can simulate it, and I can see that it's completely broken, and everyone should take their money out. And Terra, despite you know how big of a headline it was. The vast majority of people in crypto had zero exposure to Terra. Um, you know, some people had some, and obviously it was it was uh, you know a catastrophe for those who were exposed. But most people didn't have any Terra, didn't have any USD, didn't have any Luna on their balance sheet. Um, and so that I think, like you said, it's 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 not quite zero to one, but it does speak to how much better an outcome you can have 
when you have transparency and you have visibility into what these applications are doing underneath the hood. So one of the things we've learned, uh, I think, in the past 12 months is the just spectacular array of different causal categories for financial failures. Uh, you can have, for example, a situation uh, with FTX that looks a lot in many ways, or at least rhymes, uh, at least from what we've seen with what happened at MF Global. Uh, you can have governance failures. Uh, you can have essentially flash loan uh, type of uh, government governance failures. You can have uh, you can have bridge hacks. You can have uh, you can have pegs that can't be algorithmically held uh, because some of the assumptions that were baked into them were not correct. Uh, so you're certainly correct in that uh, decentralization is not a, a panacea, but it's the I think it's the solution that many uh, seem to be working toward and trying to figure out this notion of of how to essentially uh, obviate those causal categories of failure that we've learned, unfortunately, so much about in the last 12 months. Uh, Sergey, how do you think about the relationship between centralization uh, to centralized point of failure and failure risk? Yeah. So I would say, to me, I think what decentralization really brings is the notion of kind of a transparency, right? That's kind of Hasib said. So you can audit everything, you can understand everything, you can make your own judgment at the end of the day, right? So when you look at the protocol, if you want to look at the protocol. And I think kind of a centralization doesn't have those properties. You are relying on somebody telling you something. So the, the trust is just not, not there, right? And so decentralized protocols and decentralized infrastructure um, allows you to do everything in a completely open and transparent and verifiable way. Um, so that that's one thing. I think to, you, to your point, why we have seen actually a lot of you know failures, both kind of centralized and decentralized. I think one of the one of the reasons is that um, we are in some sense kind of a flying the plane while still trying to learn how to build the engines, right? <laughs> so kind of right. everything from decentralized kind of stable coins to bridges and everything else, everything gets rolled out, everything gets usage the next day or you know within the first year. But it's kind of a foundational Legos or foundational building blocks that need time to mature. It needs time to develop. It, they need time to be, uh, you know, kind of a perfected, right? And so I think that that is the challenge. But unless we learn, you know, how to do that, then we're kind of a back to to the regime where we're operating behind uh, behind banks and that has a lot of just operating inefficiencies, right? Like everything you're seeing right now with FTX collapse is just a lot of. Um, operate, operating inefficiencies as well that everybody has to deal with to kind of figure out how to, you know, get their money back if there's anything to, 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 to recover. So one of the things people often lament is that, okay, why doesn't crypto have more real-world use cases? After the last year, you might reverse that and say, thank God crypto is not being used for real-world use cases because we have time to work out the kinks. And, you know, if you look at, you know, this is part of the reason why banks are so tightly regulated is because they are very, very interwoven into the real economic fabric of how the world operates. And so you must be more risk averse when you have this kind of, you know, th this much dependence on a very small number of actors. Right. Um, crypto is in its nascency, right? Crypto also has this kind of, uh, it has this assumption of creative destruction at max speed, which means that things fail, right. things break, things explode, things get hacked. Um, as we figure these things out, the things that are more and more solid that have been relied on for more years don't get hacked. They don't break, right? Bitcoin hasn't gotten hacked. Ethereum has not gotten hacked. Uniswap has not gotten hacked. We find these things that work, but we find that, we find that they work because we expose them to the elements. We let people try them, knock on them, kick them, you know, try every angle of attack that they can think of. And eventually through pure just exposure to the elements, we learn, ah, this thing does work. This thing is secure. This thing is incentive compatible. And crypto yeah. is still in that phase right now, especially when it comes to cross-chain infrastructure. 
Well, Steve, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that is certainly the case uh, and that there have been these challenges. It, it's sort of speculative, I guess, at this point of how long it's going to take for this transition uh, to take place. Oh, well, let me just ask you that. What is your time horizon? How do you think about this? I mean, uh, you're essentially saying, hey, look, it's actually a good thing we didn't have this kind of Schumpeterian creative destruction uh, at scale because you would have had a, a chain reaction type of situation. Uh, and though, as we point out, nobody loves uh, their bank. I don't think I've ever heard a single individual say like, this bank is just wonderful. You have to come and bank there, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's very rare that you hear people say, hey, listen, I just lost $50,000 because of a failure at my bank. And, you know, sometimes it, it, you, you do have these uh, events where, you know, you get money stolen out of your account, it may take some time to get it back, but you generally do get it back. Talk a little bit about the time horizon that you see uh, in your own sort of mental model of the world for how long it takes for this technology to become uh, more at scale here in this space. So I think the, the reality is that it's not going to be uniform. It's going mm -hmm. to happen at different paces in different places, right? So one of the things that you see already is that over the last couple of years, despite all the craziness, ups and downs and volatility and prices uh, and all of the very high profile collapses, one of the things that has basically been up and to the right without failure has been stablecoins. Stablecoins have been growing both in supply and in uh, volume of just you know, pure uh, transfers and trading of, of stablecoins uh, has been growing completely undeterred, despite the fact that exchange volumes have gone down, prices have gone down, all these other things have gone down. Okay, why is that right. happening? The answer very simply is that there are places in the world where people really want stablecoins. And they don't want stablecoins because they're using it to buy NFTs or to trade crypto. They're using it because they want dollars. And you know, it's no surprise over the last year, the dollar has strengthened dramatically. You know, that, another way of saying that is that demand for dollars has gone up. Yeah. And one of the ways in which that's, representing itself is that there are people on the ground in third world economies, uh, especially in places that have very weak uh, uh, you know, local currencies and, and very weak domestic economies. That's places where people are trying to transition to dollars and they can't import dollar bills at scale fast enough and efficiently enough. So instead they use software. And it turns out that software is better, faster, cheaper, and more scalable than what they could do if they were having to literally import litter paper, bill, paper bills from right. the US. Hey, so speaking of macroeconomics, I was, I was going to say, speaking of macroeconomic issues, I wanted to talk about this uh, coming back to Asia where we were just a moment ago. Uh, Hong Kong has unveiled its plan for crypto regulation. The Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission wants to allow retail customers to trade Bitcoin and Ethereum. All crypto firms operating in Hong Kong or marketing to people living there will have to be properly licensed. The FT, uh, which is where this story originates from, also points out that no more than 2% of customer funds could be held in hot wallets. The plans are now open to public consultation for six weeks. There's been a notable pro-crypto shift in Hong Kong lately, and Bloomberg reports this has come with a quiet approval from mainland China. You know, precisely to the point that you were talking about to see this interaction between uh, macroeconomic forces and the digital asset cryptocurrency space. What are your thoughts about currently where we are in the United States? Are we doing enough to encourage this technology? I mean, when you read articles like this, uh, it's very clear that this revolution is not going away. The question is, where will the United States be in its leadership position? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, so I was just in Hong Kong actually a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was in Singapore and then just made it back to the States quite recently. It's very clear that FTX was the shot heard around the world. It really affected you know, every single regulator, every lawmaker, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but people responded to FTX very differently depending on where they were, right? So we were just talking about Japan uh, with FTX Japan, you know, having fully, uh, being about to fully open withdrawals. Japan is actually very pro-crypto. Uh, their result from all this is like, hey, regulation worked. 
all these you know crazy Americans and Bahamians or whatever they end up getting screwed. But you know, Japan, we had the right call. Let's keep inviting crypto in. Uh, same thing in Korea. You see, uh, you know, Hong Kong taking that attitude, and and Singapore has has remained quite open to digital assets. U.S. I think here we have, it feels really close to home. Sam was an American, although you know FTX U.S. was relatively small. The story rings largest here, and this is ultimately the place where Sam is going to be tried, and where you know all the media, all the attention, all the conversation has been really centered around America, despite the fact that there weren't that many Americans who got caught up in FTX. Um, but you know the storyline is is most resonant here. So I think there, it's, it's very clear that Gensler in particular has been leading this charge in the U.S. Uh, with the action against BUSD and now you know this uh, obviously the settlement with Kraken. Um, this is not the last of it. There's a lot more coming, and ultimately I think Gensler wants a pound of flesh. He wants to show that he's the cop on the beat. He wants to show that he's been uh, he's done what he needs to do against this industry. Um, but the reality is that by and large, crypto is popular. And it's part of the reason why we haven't seen other agencies really bucking up to the degree that the SEC has. Mm. Uh, in democracies, for the most part, popular things get left alone. Uh, and that's why you haven't seen Congress really uniting and saying, hey, let's like shut this thing down. Let's make it illegal. Let's, let's stop people from trading. Um, it's really mostly unelected people who are the ones who are most aggressive against crypto. And that to me makes me long-term positive. Although we, we are going to see more beatdowns from the uh, from the agencies, Sergey, any thoughts? Yeah, so I think to me, I guess let's say as a founder, right, it, it's actually very hard to uh, to operate, right? Frankly, I think most of the founders that you see in the crypto space, right, most of the teams that are building in the crypto space, like they always have to think about kind of a, where do you operate, kind of how how do you build all this technology, what are the regulations, like lots of you know legal fees are being spent um, across it. So from one perspective, you know, I think some clarity, right, and some kind of understanding of what can you know and how things should be done uh, would just propel, I think, the development, right? Because we're spending, frankly, countless hours on, on things like this on, on daily basis or weekly basis. Um, from a second perspective, though, you know, I think um, there is the time when kind of clarity needs to be put in place and you want to allow innovations to continue for as long as possible before before you you put some of those kind of uh, breaks on, right? And I think we've seen some of those, um, you know, kind of challenges around the development of the internet, right? Where kind of people are like, well, what does it mean to hack, right? And the computer network, right? Like how should the, you know, judge on those things and, and things like that. You know, it took some time for the regulations and for uh, legal, legal regimes to catch up. Innovations kind of been happening in parallel, right? So I think to me, that's the key question, right? for the US and kind of the broader masses, when is the right time to put those, uh, to put those mm -hmm. rules to still continue innovation to evolve? Uh, and, but once they're there, it's not supposed to put the brakes on, but it should actually make things easier, right? That, that should be the end goal. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
You know, this reminds me, I don't know if we can show this tweet, but we have a tweet here uh, from Binance CEO Cheng Penzhao, CZ, uh, has taken issue with Kraken co-founder Jesse Powell's use of the word offshore in a ne negative context as opposed to onshore, i.e. in the U.S. CZ tweeted, quote, Drawing a distinction between onshore and everyone else is self-centered and somewhat arrogant. Everyone is onshore from their own perspective. We are better than everyone else, in quotes, is not a panacea toward building a better industry. And Cameron Winklevoss, a co-founder of U.S.-based exchange Gemini, tweeted, quote, My working thesis is, at the moment, is that the next bull run is going to start in the East. It will be a humbling reminder that crypto is a global asset class and that the West, really the U.S., always only ever had two options, embrace it or be left behind. It can't be stopped now that we know, close quote. You know, it's interesting. I, th my reaction to these tweets is, that, I mean, certainly CZ is absolutely correct uh, that everyone is onshore from their own perspective. Uh, and yet at the same time, what we've seen here from uh, the FDX challenges, uh, the FDX debacle, uh, is that more heavily regulated uh, regimes, like for example, in Japan and, and hopefully here in the United States, you're going to see better outcomes from investors. You know, in many ways, uh, what we have seen uh, in the lead up to FTX was, uh, in a certain sense, the worst of both worlds. You had intense centralization and a total absence of regulation. Uh, that's sort of a recipe for a disaster. And indeed, a disaster is exactly what we got. Uh, you know, I'm curious, though, uh, to throw this back, and this was uh, the point that I was making, Cameron Winklevoss thinking along similar lines, uh, this idea that the technology just continues, embrace it or be left behind. What are your thoughts? I think, uh, two, well, two things. One, this comment from CZ, it's very cute, it's a good quip, but ironically, he's probably the one exchange founder who can't really say that. Because, of course, Binance moved from Singapore to the Middle East. Why? I don't think it's because they wanted to be, quote-unquote, onshore. is because they were running away. And, you know, fair enough. Uh, I understand CZ's got a very complicated business, and he's got a lot of targets on his back. Um, but he's probably the one person who can't really say that, that uh, everybody's onshore from his perspective. I don't think he thinks of, you know, uh, uh, the Middle East as being onshore for him. Yeah, um, and, but, and slightly ironic is a, it's a company that actually has uh, no physical operating address. I think that's, that's right. still yeah, the yeah, case, yeah. allegedly. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to touch on one other story here. Uh, this is an interesting story from the world of NFTs. Decrypt reports NFT sales volume on Ethereum has doubled over the past week, doubled. And it seems that some of that can be attributed to a new marketplace. This, of course, is Blur. According to data from DAP Radar cited by Decrypt, Blur has seen more than $500 million in volume over the past week. That's an increase of nearly 500%. It's also five times more than OpenSea, the traditional leader in the space. Decrypt says Blur incentivizes heavy activity with token Reward. Staying with the idea of NFTs, one more story from this space. Ordinals, the so-called Bitcoin NFT, have expanded to another blockchain. Decrypt reports ordinal inscriptions are now available on Litecoin. Data from Dune Analytics shows more than 150,000 inscriptions have been minted on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, Sergey, any thoughts on this? Uh, do you have strong feelings about what's happening in the Bitcoin space right now uh, with these inscriptions on ordinals? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's actually great to see that, right? I think Bitcoin for a while, kind of as a network, uh, really tried to get some type of, uh, you know, utility beyond just transferring off Bitcoin itself, right? Um, and I think you've seen a series of upgrades to the network over the last 10 years. You know, Taproot was one of the latest ones that allow you to have some type of functionality 
right, within the Bitcoin network, right? And I think these NFTs and the you know the way they're orchestrated is kind of leveraging some of these real, some of these recent upgrades that allow you to put kind of data, right, inside of Bitcoin transactions. So uh, yeah. to me, it's actually very exciting, right? In the same way as many other platforms are figuring out different use cases around their networks, I think kind of a Bitcoin finally having some type of, uh, you know, functionality on chain around its transactions, I think is actually really, really interesting. Yeah, and it's obviously controversial as well. By the way, speaking of NFTs, we want to show a clip from our co-founder, Rao Pal. Yesterday, we released a special video on the Real Vision website. You can access it right now at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's Rao's entire NFT thesis in one video, a must watch. Here's a snippet from it. Let's take a look. Web3 is an incredibly powerful business model. It's probably the most powerful business model I've ever seen. And that goes back to network effects. So if you remember, I've talked a lot about the network effects, Metcalfe's law of owning cryptocurrencies. Why does it work so much? Because it's behavioral economics 101. If you have incentivization to help promote something, you will do so. And if the better it goes, the more you get, then even better. So, you know, if you're a salesman, you get paid to sell something, a car, but you don't get paid the upside of Tesla over time growing as a company. You have to be a shareholder for that. So with Facebook, the shareholders got rich because they developed an incredibly important network, one of the biggest networks on earth. So that meta network is Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp. Okay. So we got to use the utility of these platforms. We can connect with friends and do all the things that we want to on their network. Uh, we can advertise our businesses. We can do all sorts, communicate with everybody. Okay, great. And then they monetized us with advertising. So they took the lion's share of the revenue and the shareholders got rich and we didn't. Okay, I mean, that's fine. It's a business. They can do what they want. But this new model, imagine if everybody who had gone onto Facebook in the early days or into WhatsApp got given shares. Then imagine how fast the adoption would have been and how broad it would have been. So network effects and incentivization, uh, I think in many ways, Raul is applying his investment thesis the, to the operationalization of Web3. Uh, this is a thesis that I've always uh, found, I think, profoundly influential in the way that I think about these spaces uh, being articulated by Raul. And I think the first person to really uh, bring these pieces together, the network effects, the incentivization, and kind of coming up with uh, this model, at least publicly here in media. Uh, obviously, there's some regulatory questions about applying a shareholder model to Web3, and, and that still remains to be determined. Uh, but I think Raul makes some really excellent points here. By the way, once again, you can access that full video right now at realvision.com forward slash crypto. Uh, Sergey, Hasib, any thoughts on what you've just heard from Raul? I mean, to me, in some sense, I think it, it makes sense. And that's what allowed the, the crypto industry to be kind of self-sustainable on its own, right? Like you have people that are builders, uh, users all at the same time, you know, get kind of liquidity, participate in the networks, play with more technologies and kind of continue building, right? So right. Um, without it, in some sense, I think it would be really hard to, to grow, but the, the ecosystems keeps growing because you have all these networking effects built into, into its, own, uh, in, its, own, its own economy. Let's see many so I'm gonna be, yeah, I'm gonna be a bit of a gadfly here and say that I completely disagree. So, you know, I, I heard this thesis, I heard this thesis so many times in 2017. This was, a, this was the original thesis of why tokens and ICOs and everything were going to take off. And it turned out that this thesis, for the most part, 
um, was completely wrong. So we first saw this tried out with ICOs, this idea, okay, I'm going to sell you this token, and because you have this token, you're going to use my product. And it turns out, you know, almost every single ICO that, that took place, people didn't use the product just because they bought the token. Uh, then, you know, fast forward to another few years later, and we have DeFi and liquidity mining. And the idea is that, okay, I'm going to give you tokens, and if, you give, if I give you tokens, you'll use my product. And once again, uh, we learned that, no, what people do is they farm the token, and they and they sell it immediately and they never use the product at all. In fact, the people who are getting these tokens don't give a damn about the product. All they really want is to, is to earn a yield. And of course, the other thing you find is that some of the most beloved products in crypto didn't have tokens. And so you look at OpenSea, no token, it was obviously the dominant NFT trading platform. You looked at Uniswap, which became dominant before they even had a token. And uh, the same thing was true for most of the applications in crypto that have really become super dominant. This idea, anytime, and I, I say this as an investor because I spent a lot of time thinking about this and observing this, anytime that you think your theory of why people are going to use this is because they're going to own my token and that's why right. they're going to use my product, almost always that is a bad theory. The theory of why people use products in Web3 or in anything is because they love the product. Right. It's because it solves some problem they actually have. And if this were true, you would see crypto behaving very differently than it actually behaves. People see this sometimes with something like Dogecoin, which is just a purely reflexive, mimetic kind of community, effectively. Right. Um, but most things in crypto that work don't look like that. They look like this is a great product, and this token is integrated into a product that solves some other underlying problem. That's why it gets usage. Kessie, would you say those two propositions are logically exclusive, though? This idea that you can uh, that you can have organic demand for a product and then theoretically some type of participation uh, in the upside, uh, whether it's a utility token. Again, there's a there's a I think a substantial challenge around the Howey test to sort this out. Uh, but do you think that the two are logically exclusive? I mean, for example, uh, when you when you mentioned uh, like ENS, for example, was a was a really cool idea before there was a token drop. I got tokens, uh, full disclosure, in the ENS token drop because I thought it was cool to be able to register AshBennington.eth. I thought it was just a cool idea. Uh, but the fact that it does then incentivize you to participate, it does that just add another layer to it? How do you think about that sort of logical exclusivity argument? So if you look at you know, most traditional Web2 products, right, almost always they have some kind of customer acquisition referral program, something like this that allows you, hey, if you use my product, you get 20% you know, off if you use it at least 10 times, something like this. Um, these kinds of things are very common and they, and they totally work. But the question is, what is the order of causation? Right? People will use your product the first time, not because you offer them a carrot, but because it solves a problem that they have. And then they may increase your usage. They may shift usage away from other applications that they don't want to use as much. Like for you, if you were told, hey, take this ENS, you know, make an ENS name for yourself, maybe you'll get an airdrop. You'd be like, well, there are a thousand things I can maybe get an airdrop for, right? That's not right. I'm going to be spending my time. But True. if you're like, hey, if I use this thing that sounds interesting, I might also get a reward. And if I use it more, and if I refer a friend, I can get even more rewards. Okay, that's going to animate you. That's going to motivate you to really use this thing, right? If you look at Ethereum, the reason why people use Ethereum is not because they own Ether. That's not why people use Ethereum. People use Ethereum because Ethereum is host to, you know, thousands of applications that people actually care about for underlying reasons. Most Ether is owned by, you know, whales who just have it in custody and it doesn't do anything. It, doesn't, it just sits there, right? So the reality is that I think in the very earliest stages, tokens can, can be effective in that kind of a flywheel, but anytime you think you've posited a positive feedback loop, positive feedback loops, if they actually do work, uh, generally speaking, they have very decreasing marginal utility. Otherwise, mm. a token that does that would just end up you know, having a billion dollar market cap the next day because the feedback loop would continue forever. Almost no feedback loops work like that. Feedback loops almost always decay 
as they get bigger, which means that, okay, there's some initial juice you get from having a token and incentivizing something, but then it hits a wall and you got to just build the best product. And that's what, right. you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, that's mostly what I tell them is that tokenomics is not going to save you. You got to actually build a better mousetrap. Yeah. I want to get to viewer questions because we have a really good one. And this is a perfect question, I think, for Sergey. And also like to get you in on this as well. See, uh, this question comes to us from Bandit8899 on YouTube. Vitalik Buterin argued against a cross-chain future due to the limits of security bridges. He said it would rather be a multi-chain future. How do you respond to that? Yeah. I mean, to me, cross-chain is inevitable when you have multi-chain, right? So the, the reality is that when you have multiple chains and you know you can call them different chains, different layer ones, different layer twos, right? Like for all practical reasons, layer two is its own chain that has a single bridge to, to Ethereum. Uh, you need to compose them with one another, right? You need to be able to you know, transfer liquidity, transfer information, transfer assets uh, across it. So if you are in multi-chain world, I think cross-chain is inevitable and I don't see how one can work with the, without the other. I know that we have a hard stop here uh, at the top of the hour, so I just wanted to get each of you to give us your final thoughts and key takeaways. Uh, Sergey, first to you, uh, 30 seconds or so, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with. Yeah. So I think for me, kind of the last year, you know, it's been a pretty hard year overall to the industry, yeah. right? But I think I'm looking forward to to the next year being what I call as the kind of the year of boring crypto, right? Where we go back, back to the fundamentals and actually build infrastructure and build the products that will matter for the long term and can stand for the long term. So I am, uh, you know, pretty excited to just continue having, um, you know, the best uh, products uh, that we're building. Let's see, final thoughts, key takeaways. Key takeaways, look, as uh, I'll say as an investor, I love bear markets. They're a lot more, they're a lot less chaotic. It's more quiet. You can focus on the real problems that need to get solved. And ultimately, that's what bear markets are really for, is for focusing on what actually needs to happen for this industry to come to the next level. Uh, I completely agree. Crypto is not going to stop for anyone. It's not going to stop for FTX. It's not going to stop for regulators. It's going right. to keep evolving. And it's a global story. Yeah, very well said. Uh, guys, we've blown through an hour here today. We ran a little bit long, but such a spectacular conversation. I just wanted to keep it going. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Pleasure to have you both with us. Hope you'll come back again soon. Thanks for having us, Ash. Thanks for joining us. For those of you watching on YouTube, like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. That way you will always stay up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis. If you're not a Real Vision crypto subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with technical analyst Michael Vandepup, uh, who will join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great day, everybody.